The Guardian. On the 21st of December, the planets Jupiter and Saturn crossed paths, the nearest they've been in 400 years. Known as the Great Conjunction, it's been speculated that this celestial event might have been the Star of Bethlehem or the Star of Wanda. And 2,000 years later, many of us still did look up in wonder at the planets as they came together as two pinpricks of light in the night sky. There's something undeniably appealing, emotive and impressive about the cosmos that has kept humans staring upwards in awe, from our Paleolithic ancestors to modern astronomers equipped with very big telescopes. Why are humans natural stargazers? And how is our relationship to the cosmos changing? In 2018, researchers suggested that we should see artificial light pollution as a global threat on a par with climate change. So that just gives you a sense of the sort of how, how wide this problem is. I'm Linda Geddes, a science correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. Across two episodes, we're diving into the rich and complex relationship humans have with the sun, moon, planets and the stars beyond. For this cosmic journey, I was joined by Joe Marchant, a science writer and author of the book The Human Cosmos, and Lord Martin Rees, astronomer royale and astrophysicist at Cambridge University, and whose most recent book is called On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. The first thing I wanted to know was about how long humans have been looking to the cosmos for answers to the biggest questions about our existence and our place in the universe. I asked Joe what kind of evidence we had of humanity's earliest relationship with the stars. Our view of the night sky has always been important to people. There's some really interesting evidence from the caves of the Paleolithic, for example, in cave art. There's a an oryx bull in Lascaux Cave in France, for example, that has this curious pattern of six dots above its shoulder, which looks very similar to representations of the Pleiades star cluster that you see throughout history. And particularly, interestingly, the Pleiades do occur just at the shoulder of a bull in our modern constellation Taurus. So that's some really intriguing hints, if you like, that even as far back as the Paleolithic, people were interested in the stars, painting the stars. And if you look at hunter-gatherer communities, the cosmos is absolutely central to how they live. And that makes sense if you think about it, because what's happening in the sky, so the movements of the, the sun and the moon, especially the sun, you know, that's determining whether your environment on Earth is, is light or dark, warm or cold. You've got the passings of the seasons. It's determining whether life is thriving or dying and even the stars as well like through the year you have different stars becoming uh, visible in the sky with different seasons and hunter-gatherer communities very commonly will link those changes in visibility of the stars with particular events on earth such as the blackfoot native american people for example traditionally linked the visibility of the pleiades with the life cycle of the bison which they hunted so it was very much right from the beginning a sort of holistic cosmos where what was happening in the sky, those changes were absolutely interconnected with everything that was happening on Earth. And then as you see um, humanity sort of develop and the first civilizations, you see the cosmos right there in terms of timekeeping, navigation, leaders taking their authority from the skies. So it's really been there sort of inspiring every aspect of, of, of human life since the beginning. Martin, do you ever think of cosmology and astrophysics as part of this grand tradition of looking up at the skies in wonder? 
Let me first say I agree with uh, what Joe is saying. The point about the night sky is it's one feature of our environment, which has been common to all human beings throughout human history, wherever they lived. They've all looked up at it in wonder and felt it's got many, many mysteries. And of course, apart from that, it's been very important for the calendar and uh, timekeeping, etc. And I like to say at astronomy, is the oldest science, except perhaps for medicine, and definitely the first science to do more good than harm. But coming up to modern times, of course, uh, uh, we now have a much grander conception of the scale of the cosmos. In ancient times, they didn't really have a distinction between meteorology and astronomy. They didn't really know that everything in the cosmos, the stars and the planets, are far, far further away than the clouds. It was all together, really. But now we do know, of course, the scale of the uh, stars, the planets and the galaxies. We don't necessarily always see it as a star, but our own sun influences our biology. I wrote a lot about this in my own book, Chasing the Sun. We all have this 24-hour rhythm in our biology, which influences everything from when we feel sleepy and awake to when we release hormones to the chemistry of our brains. And the way that these circadian rhythms managed to stay synchronized with the time of day outdoors is through the action of light from the sun hitting the back of our eyes. But these rhythms don't just dictate our lives, do they, Joe? No, that's right. They're really important for all of life on Earth. And this is something that humanity has been aware of for thousands of years. So we know that those solar rhythms are encoded into our DNA. There are genetically determined rhythms that are regulating every aspect of biology pretty much in every part of life. And, and for us, that's including sleep patterns, kidney function, even cell division. But Interestingly, there's also sort of increasing recognition now of the role of the moon as well. That's something that hasn't, that scientists haven't paid quite so much attention to. It's a sort of more subtle influence. But researchers who are looking at particularly in marine animals, things like corals, fish, bristle worms, are finding that hundreds of genes are varying with the face of the moon in these species as well. The fact that you're seeing that in such diverse kinds of creatures, researchers are suggesting that those moon clocks as well could be dating from very early in evolution and possibly in humans also. I mean, that's been a, a really ancient belief, the role of the moon possibly influencing fertility and births, even in humans, influencing mental health. The results on this have always been mixed, but recently there's been a, quite an interesting study in Germany suggesting that the phases of the moon can entrain women's menstrual cycles. There was a study recently looking at patients with bipolar disorder, suggesting that the, the sleep patterns that trigger their mood switches are in turn being driven by lunar cycles. If you think about it in terms of nature, animals aren't really going to distinguish between sun and moon. They're just detecting changing light levels. And, you know, we're not really exposed to those changing light levels now because of our, our modern lives. But, but through evolutionary history, it's been a combination of signals from the sun and the moon that's really been driving biology and that creatures are, are using those time signals in, in every way they can to coordinate their activities. Tell us about the dung beetles. Oh, <laughs> uh, so dung beetles are interesting because they actually cite 
off the Milky Way when they're trying to get back to their nest. So they're rolling the sort of huge balls of dung. You've probably seen the footage. And they're using the stars and the Milky Way to orient. And so the sky is really important for navigation as well. And there are animals that use the sun, the moon, the stars, the Milky Way. And that's also one area where wildlife is being really affected by light pollution. In 2018, researchers suggested that we should see artificial light pollution as a global threat on a par with climate change. So that just gives you a sense of the sort of how how wide this problem is. Now we're going to come on to light pollution in the next episode. But Martin, I want to turn to you here. It's clear that the stars and the moon direct biological behaviours and life cycles. But what about their use in organising our lives? Well, before that, can I say how scientific uh, astronomy developed? I think the calendar, which Joe has mentioned, was a great achievement. It's amazing that uh, uh, the Romans and the Babylonians had lots and lots of data about the uh, calendar and, of course, the Julian calendar, which already realized that the number of days in a year uh, was 365 and a quarter, about not 365, and they inserted leap years every four years to allow for that. That was already done 2,000 years ago, and that was possible because they had already good data. But then if we come to medieval times, uh, when uh, 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 the expertise was in monasteries and places like that, they learned something else. They learned that the calendar was getting a bit out of sync. Uh, the time in the year uh, of the solstice, when the midday sun was lowest in the sky in the winter, was no longer in mid-December. It had shifted about 10 days later. And so they realized that they had to make a correction there. And of course, they did make this correction, and uh, that's incorporated in the modern calendar. But what's amazing is that they had long enough records and enough precision observations to make these things long ago. And now modern astronomy is allowing us to extend our calendars very far back, almost to the start of the universe, as well as looking ahead to what might happen in the future. Joe, the idea of using the stars to predict the future and our own fates has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Right from the beginning, the, the sky has been so important in allowing people to make sense of their changing environment. And it was really the Babylonians in ancient Mesopotamia who kind of took this to extremes. So we know about their celestial beliefs from um, clay tablets, for example, in the library of the ancient Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who ruled in the 7th century BC. And we see in these tablets there were an absolute obsession with what was happening in the sky. So they took this much further and believed that everything from a planet changing in direction to a lunar eclipse, these were all celestial warnings from the gods or omens about terrible things that were going to happen on Earth. And once you knew which omen was occurring, they could conduct appropriate rituals to stop the bad thing from happening. So it was really important to kind of be watching the sky to stay on top of the different events that were being observed. And so the the, the Babylonian and the Assyrian kings all had teams of astronomers who would be watching the sky every night. And they did this for centuries. And I think what's really interesting about this is that sort of obsession with the sky and that fear of these divine omens, if you like, that caused them to be watching the sky every night, recording what they saw literally over centuries. That is what then enabled them to make sense of these patterns. They started to derive great cycles or periods of time after which certain kinds of events would repeat. 
They then came up with the invention of the zodiac, which is dividing the circle of the ecliptic, which is the path that the the sun takes um, against the background stars through the year. They divided that 360 degree circle into 12 segments of 30 degrees each, named each one after a nearby constellation. And that is the origins of the zodiac that we have today that we associate with astrology. But that made them much more powerful. Like soon after that, they came up with quite sophisticated mathematical rules for then computing the changing position of different celestial bodies in the sky. And so they no, no longer needed to actually watch the sky for these omens at all. They could predict what was going to happen you know, for real before it actually did. And I think that was a really key moment in human history. They were the first people to use mathematics, to use numbers to make sense of the sky. Um, and so it was that, you know, desire to kind of see our future, if you like, that that really did enable that power of prediction, not quite in the way that they'd imagined it. And that's been, you know, so powerful for the development of our scientific approach ever since. And um, and today we have horoscope writers who um, have a different kind of power and certainly very big salaries, I believe. Um, Martin, as someone who studies the cosmos, you must understand this kind of this appeal of the stars. Why do you think so many people are attached to the idea of them influencing our fate? Well, I think uh, they are prominent features of our environment. And of course, we can predict, as Joe says, the movement of the planets, etc. And of course, the Babylonians had enough data they could uh, predict roughly when eclipses would occur, the sort of 18-year cycle. And they even measured a very, very slow effect called the precession of the equinoxes, uh, which uh, takes place over thousands of years. And they had enough data to realize that this was another change. And so they realized that there was some deep mechanism behind all this. And they didn't understand, uh, not really until uh, Copernicus and Newton, etc., what was actually causing these motions. But they naturally thought that because these were so important for the cosmos, that they would be also uh, important in uh, people's lives as well. So it was very natural that they would have uh, taken seriously all these other predictions about the effect on their lives of the stars. But of course, the belief that the stars can affect our lives continues today. Joe, why do you think modern people are still obsessed with horoscopes? It's a really interesting question. And I think in some cases, it's not so much despite the lack of scientific evidence. I think there is a reaction amongst some people against this very scientific mathematical way that we have of understanding reality now, which is, of course, a very powerful way of understanding reality. But it's kind of led to this modern way of life where we're very disconnected from the sky in a physical sense. We're surrounded by our modern technology. We don't really live in a way that's in line with cosmological cycles. And so we have this sort of intellectual understanding. We know the facts about the universe, what it's made of and how it works. But there's a sort of human emotional connection that I think people miss. I think that's what they're sort of trying to rediscover and that that is expressed in in astrology, which, you know, from a physical point of view makes absolutely no sense at all. I don't believe in astrological predictions myself. I don't follow my horoscope, but I do sort of understand that desire to have a more human, meaningful connection to the stars. There is a sense where in stressful times and people feel that they don't have a lot of control over their lives, there is a sort of a comfort there of, of trying to make sense of, of the world that's, you know, becoming expressed in some cases through astrology. 
discussion has centered around the concept of time. Joe, in the human cosmos, you talk about the history of time and how it's embodied by the cosmos. Tell us a bit more about that. Through most of history, really, time was inseparable from the cosmos. It literally was the, you know, the movements of the sun, the moon, the stars, the passing days, months, seasons, years, that people didn't have any sense of a sort of separate abstract mathematical time of, of seconds ticking by. And there are still people living on the planet who have that sense of time. So the Amandawa people of the Amazon in, in Brazil, for example, they have uh, they don't count past two or three. Um, they have no word for time, um, no sense of, of time. There's just changing events in the environment, sunrise, um, sunset, you know, the rainy season, the dry season. And Western civilization, and now for most of the world, we do have this sort of abstract sense of, of time. And I think it's really interesting how that came about. And, you know, there were efforts to measure time from quite early on in history. You've got the Babylonians, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Greeks, they're using uh, sundials, um, star clocks during the night, and maybe things like water clocks and sand timers, but they still ultimately had to be reset sort of in line with the sky. Time is still coming from the sky. And it was really the invention of mechanical clocks with the medieval monks of of Europe that, that changed all of that. They wanted accurate clocks so that they could they could time their prayers more accurately. They sort of saw that as increasing the, the spiritual power of their of their worship. But the problem with all of these sort of ways of measuring time, whether it's water or falling sand, burning candle, falling weight, they're all different types of continuous flow, which kind of makes sense in terms of the way that you know you think of the sun's movements or time passing. But it's really hard to get those kinds of processes to happen at a constant speed. And so the key invention in mechanical clocks was a little piece of the mechanism called an an escapement, which rocks backwards and forwards. It alternately sort of blocks and releases the movement of a gear wheel. So it's, it's slicing up that continuous flow into countable equal chunks. The kind of the weight is falling in these countable chunks, which is the ticks or the seconds of the clock. So that's really interesting because you've gone then from like analog time to digital. You've sliced it up into seconds. And this is what enabled mechanical clocks to, to become more and more accurate. And eventually, of course, they became more accurate than the sun. Uh, because the sun speed varies slightly. So you can sort of see in the development of clocks, time coming out of the cosmos. Now we see it not as a sort of qualitative thing, as changing experiences of events, but it's this quantitative, abstract thing you can count and measure. You know, we see it more like um, money, if you like. It's something that we can count, buy, waste, spend, save. And, And those more accurate clocks are seen by historians as being really important in driving secularization, economic development, sort of laying the groundwork for capitalism, the industrial revolution. It's a really interesting shift from a sort of divine cosmos, if you like, you know, worshipping God's creation towards a much more uh, mathematical, quantitative approach. That's it for part one. My thanks to Joe Marchant and Martin Rees. And we've put links to their books on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. In Thursday's episode, we'll be discussing the relationship between the cosmos and power and religion, as well as light pollution and the future of space exploration. I think there will be some people, some adventurers, who will perhaps uh, uh, go as far as Mars and perhaps uh, settle there. But I think uh, the more people explore into space, they realise just how special our Earth is. Do join us then. 
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.